Hello, and welcome to The Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, an issue that affects a huge number of Americans, yet one you won't hear many politicians talking about, land use and its effect on housing. And Richard, you wrote a piece on this topic recently for uh, Defining Ideas in which you used California as a jumping off point. And California is, of course, one of the places where there's the most anxiety about the cost of housing, especially if you get into the Bay Area and L.A., although plenty of other places around the country where this is a big problem. You think of places like New York or, or Boston, et cetera. Um, but this isn't always just simple supply and demand. So why don't we start here? What are the policies that we most often see constraining the supply of housing and as a result making it more expensive? Okay. Well, I mean, the first thing to note is exactly that. You never have these battles in Bakersfield, California, where you have a lot of tundra and the local land use policy runs as follows. Please come to my community. We will do anything to make it possible. It only happens in places like California by the seacoast, a fancy urban centers like San Francisco, Boston, and New York where people want to be. And the reason you have such power is that the people who want to come there essentially have dollars, but they don't have votes. The people who are there have votes and may not have dollars. Uh, so the people with the dollars are trying to buy their way in, but the people with the votes are trying to keep them out. And in order to do so, what they do is they put up a set of restrictions on what can be done. And this is a complete full court press, a work of art, as it were. On the one hand, you have all sorts of substantive restrictions of when you can build, how much you can build, where you can build it, how you hook up the sewer lines and all sorts of things like that. And this is not just a trivial set of checklists. This is like a huge book of things that you have to comply with. And then it turns out there are also the procedures. Um, what kind of hearings do you have to get? What kind of notice do you have to give? What kind of neighbors can appear there? When can you go to court? And what has happened is that essentially the procedures are worked up in the following way. The people who run these systems realize that the moment there's a final judgment made by an administrative body, it can be brought into court. And so what you do is you engage in a form of legal water torture, and that means that you give people more and more rights to constantly appeal and to reverse the situation. And the longer you could keep the game going on procedural grounds, uh, the longer you can keep the development from taking place. The developer won't begin the proceedings until he's actually built. The, uh, bought the land. Once he's bought the land, he won't be able to do the procedures through the system unless until he gives a series of very specific plans and programs that he wants to put into place. And then the delays start. Uh, so what they do is they capture these guys with a large amount of front end cost and then kind of draw this thing out where the time value of money is very, very high. And the usual deal is we will let you build something less than you want at more than you would like to do so, but you're going to have to do something for us, and that something for us is called an exaction. So you would like to uh, build a nice house by the waterfront. We have a dam upstream from where you live. It needs $20,000 of work. You fix the dam, you get the permit. 
for less than you want, but more than you would get if we denied you altogether. And this has been developed into an art form in cities and in counties and in countries and along lakes and rivers and so forth. And everything that the courts have said have put barely a damper on it. Uh, so the local governments understand the drill and they apply them and the shortages follow as the night, the day. Nobody is so foolish as to kill all development, because at that point their own communities may atrophy. So what they do is they tamp down on the intensity of it, slow down the timing, try to get people who will pay a fortune to build one house on a very big lot, the Steven Spielbergs of the world, so they can get all the tax revenues without having to have the density of neighbors. It's an art form. So in some of the places where the housing problem is most acute, as you're noting, the neighbors and the members of the community, they've got a lot of legal avenues by which they can slow down construction or even stop construction under certain scenarios. If we go to the other end of the spectrum, I mean, it seems far-fetched to imagine a scenario under which they have no say in which goes what goes on around them. So is there a set of clear principles as to how much say incumbent property owners should have on the development in their neighborhoods? There is no clear set of principles, but there's some very workable guidelines and some pitfalls that you have to avoid. First pitfall is that you cannot simply look at the external harms, so-called, to the people who want to stop the development and assume that unless they are placated or satisfied through the administrative procedure, the building will never take place. What you have to do is to concede at the outset that there are certain things like height restrictions that you would like to impose upon people that you have to pay for. They are in the nature of restrictive covenants. These are property interests in the normal world. If you wish to do it consensually with somebody else, you'd have to buy it. So what you'd have to do is to find a way so as to give the guy some money so he won't build over a certain house, a certain level. That's often very tricky. So what typically happens is you get a planned unit development and all the covenants are built in at the front end so that people know what they can do and what they can't do. When you've got isolated houses on separate blocks, you don't have that. And so you have to use the condemnation power, which is much more difficult to use than the essentially the covenant power that a single owner can bring to the thing. But you have to be prepared to say to people, look, you don't want a six-story building there? Buy out the air rights over two stories. It's actually not going to cost you that much because you don't have to pay for the building that's never built. What you have to do is to pay for the reduction in value. And if it turns out that very tall buildings are not going to sell very well, it may well be that if the land is worth $100,000, you can buy out those air rights for 10 or for $15,000, 10 or 15%. And then in effect, what happens is the developer is not going to be done in and the neighbors will have to pay this. It is an incredible resistance to pay under all these circumstances. So how do they get around it? They use the notion of an externality. And that says, if anything that you do leaves me worse off, the harm that you create to me is going to be compensable. And then the definition of harms gets very odd. It turns out I don't like the color of the window shades. Turns out you're blocking my view. You're blocking my light. I can't grow my hydrangeas where I want to. You're going to make noise at night when you basically close up your house and you're going to drive your car down the street. I don't like that. And then these become veto points that you have to buy your way out of. 
In the end, there's a price at which the folks will sell. So the housing crisis is never one that says, we don't build in Berkeley after 1990. The housing crisis is one which says for the last 50 years, we build too little. We require people to rehab houses that probably should be ripped down. We don't allow for uh, multi-dimensional units, you know, five or six stories, six or seven people into an area. And by the time you take into account all the restrictions, what happens is the neighborhoods are desirable. The demand goes up, uh, the supply doesn't keep up, but all the incumbents in the property know the following thing. If we keep the artificial scarcity, the value of our unit goes way up so that when we leave town, we walk with a bundle. If we let more people come in, they may gain, but we will not be able to get the same amount out of the system. And so there's a huge resistance to having too much development take place. And so what you do is it's not that you get none, but you get a suboptimal level. Let me ask you about a passage in the piece that you wrote, which reads as follows, um, quote, today zoning works in such a way that it gives the first group to build the political clout to secure ironclad protections against any subsequent development of nearby lands that reduces the incumbent's perceived land values. And so in Berkeley today, this is a hypothetical, the neighbor who grows beans on his land that are worth, say, a few thousand dollars can successfully block or delay the construction of new homes that are worth a hundred times as much. Instead of categorically rejecting the outlandish claims of the bean grower, the law slips into an endless administrative process that gives the claimant a respectful hearing, even though his crops can be raised far more efficiently on agricultural lands that have little or no value for home construction, close quote. Now, that is all of a piece with with what we've been talking about already. But can I get you to explain the limits on this idea of putting land toward its highest and best use? What if, for instance, the home builder in this hypothetical sought to use eminent domain on the bean grower's land on that argument that it would be more productively used for the housing units than for the beans? Well, what happens is no landowner can use eminent domain against the neighbor. Eminent domain has to be imposed by the state. And there's no question that if you sort of went behind the veil of ignorance and you said, we have the following choices, um, people can build at any time and they can build houses. People can build at any time and they can only put bean gardens in there. Everybody would rather have a house on his own property, even if it meant that the neighbor had one on his property, even though the two houses would to some extent interfere with the views. Uh, So essentially, if you handle the problem from an ex-ante perspective, whether you're building first or second, you'd want to have the same privileges. And that's the way the traditional common law rule worked. What these guys are doing is they're playing a different game. They said, look, we built first. We're now here. Uh, You're the outsider. And if you now build, you're going to be blocking our view. And since we came first, we can enjoin you. And since we've already built You cannot enjoin us. Now, it turns out the reason this works so well is that the guy who is already built is a voter inside the community who has friends who are also voters inside the community. The fellow who wants to build on the lot is typically an outsider. He doesn't have the clout. And even if he's an insider, there may well be 10 people who want to keep him out. And he's the only one that is the new person who wants to build. So essentially, by allowing people to get claims over their neighbor's lands by early construction, it favors the initial entrance into this area. The common law rule is exactly the opposite. Didn't matter when you got there, 
you had no greater rights against your neighbor if you came earlier or late. And the point is you don't want people to rush to construction to get liens over their neighbor's property. You want them to figure out what the optimal time to build is relative to the gains and losses they have on their properties. But it's extremely difficult in modern politics to get rid of this particular syndrome, which says if you build first, you can block your neighbors, which means that the incumbents, given their political power and their legal discretion, they have an enormous leverage over everybody else. And as I said, it never stops the process. It just slows it down to a highly inefficient level. Richard, a lot of people, when they hear complaints about the cost of housing, will say, well, there are a couple of easy solutions. You could have the government subsidize affordable housing or you could have the government impose rent control. What's wrong with those approaches? Well, they're a nice way to kill a community if you want to try. Let's start with the first thing. If, in fact, you decide you're going to subsidize affordable housing, you're going to have to ask, from whence is the subsidy going to come? What you discover is it never comes from the community writ large out of general taxes. People will not pay money on their own houses to stop, uh, to pay for somebody else to live in their community. In fact, usually they will try to fight the entry of low-income people into a community. And so what you have to do is you have to get it from a developer. And so you tell the developer, like they told him in San Jose, for every house that you want to build at a market level, you have to commit to building 0.2 houses in a non-market level. So it's a five to one ratio. And you can only sell those regulated houses at a certain price. We'll let you get as much as you want on the market rate units. The problem is there's an upper limit to what you can charge in the market. And if the prices on the regulated things are set low enough, the system operates like price controls and creates systematic shortages, and hence nothing gets built. And there have been studies done in San Jose, a bankrupt city in many cases, and before they had affordable housing mandates, there was a fairly high level of construction. After they had them, they basically dropped down. If you then look to the courts to get some relief, the California Supreme Court on land use issues is worse than hopeless in my judgment. And they basically say the townspeople know what they have to do. So long as the thing is not completely irrational, um, we're going to allow it. And it's never irrational if you're trying to help poor people live in the community. Programs are therefore almost always um, legal. On the rent control side, uh, you have similar kinds of problems. Tenants get in, and it turns out you can't pry them out, and the rent is well below the market level. And then you try to figure out what's it worth to a tenant. And if the market rate for a completely unregulated market would be, say, $5,000, and the rent control is, say, $2,000, these are very realistic numbers, uh, that's essentially a gap of about $3,000 a month, $36,000 a year. You capitalize that, and that rent control unit is worth a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, to the particular tenant. And the landlord is a creditor on his own unit. If the value goes down, he takes the loss. If the value goes up, the tenant typically pays more rent, measured by the increase not in the value of the unit, but of the cost of providing services. Uh, those numbers are then done fairly generously to the tenant. In New York City, for example, this past year, landlords in their stabilization program were given a zero increase. The units tend to fall into disrepair. Uh, that means they're worth even less. The tenants don't leave, but the tax base starts to shrink. The neighborhood starts to fail. And what you do is you get this incredibly weird situation where you have many dilapidated or near dilapidated units at bargain rates. Uh, the unregulated units go way up in price. 
there will now be a pressure to say new units can be subject to rent control and you can double cross the guys who built them on the promise that they were going to get market rates forever. And you will win constitutionally, at least in most states, if you do the double cost. retroactive changes don't matter. And so the cycle will continue. There's rumors I've heard that in California, they're trying to increase the number of local options and to bring more and more units into rent control. Why is that? Because sitting tenants in the neighborhood don't want to be expelled at the end of their leases. They're voters. And so what they're trying to do in their large numbers of them is to imitate, imitate the position of the single family homeowner in Berkeley and say, essentially, our interest lasts forever and the landlord is not entitled to remove us. And what this does is it constrains the supply of housing. And that means they're more homeless people, longer commutes, deterioration in the tax base, consequent limitation in local services, schools, libraries, everything else, and the system becomes a disaster. And real estate is such a huge part of any market that if this thing goes badly, it can bring the whole system toppling down with it. And there is a present no strong sentiment to sort of undo the system comprehensively by rethinking it from first principles. There is some sense on the part of people like Jerry Brown, who's always an accommodator. The man is not a fool. He knows what his political base is, and he realizes he's got to get more housing up. But instead of fundamentally changing the system, which no politician is willing to do, what he does is he moves for incremental improvements, trying to remove some of the tools that local governments have for keeping out new development. He will have some modest success. But what always happens in these games is the local government guys are there all the time. The governors come and go and they worry about global energy or something else. And after three or four years, they've managed to perfect the way to put the old safeguards back into place. And you have to start the process all over again. It's not a very pretty picture, I dare say. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating The Libertarian on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.